You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Ever since the English-speaking world discovered the work of Soren Kierkegaard in the middle part of the last century, he has been an indispensable part of the Western philosophical and theological traditions. He's seen variously as a precursor to movements as diverse as existentialism, post-structuralism, evangelicalism, and neo-orthodoxy. Few people make it through higher education without encountering books like Fear and Trembling and the concluding unscientific postscript, but while most of us have some familiarity with the basic contours of Kierkegaard's thought, it can be very difficult to fill in the details. Kierkegaard, like his near-contemporary Nietzsche, was not a systematic thinker in the manner that analytic philosophy expects, and it's hard to get your mind around his arguments without reading many of his books many times over. To make it even harder, most of Kierkegaard's most popular books appeared under a series of strange pseudonyms, and scholars have argued amongst themselves whether we can take them as expressions of Kierkegaard's own thoughts, or whether we should read them as something more akin to fiction. All this means that Kierkegaard is hard to understand and easy to caricature. Fortunately, our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is Merrill Westfall, who has been thinking and writing about Kierkegaard for decades. He's the author of three previous studies of Kierkegaard, 1987's Kierkegaard's Critique of Reason and Society, 1996's Becoming a Self, a reading of Kierkegaard's concluding unscientific postscript, and 1999's Love and Ask and Kierkegaard in Dialogue, as well as many other books on Hegel, postmodernism, existentialism, hermeneutics, and atheism. His latest book is Kierkegaard's Concept of Faith, part of Erdman's new series on Kierkegaard as a Christian thinker, and I'm thrilled that it brings him to Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, Merrill. I'm glad to be here. I want to begin, as Kierkegaard himself might have, with a bit of autobiography. Uh, It's clear that Kierkegaard has been an important part of your professional life, and your work has obviously been important to Kierkegaard's studies. How did you become interested in him and his writings, and and how has the way you've thought about him changed since you first started reading him? Uh, Very early in my teaching career, I'd finished my degree at Yale and had been asked to stay on, and I was teaching there, and I was very excited about with a, a plum um, gift to, to teach the undergrad seminar on Kant, uh, the critique of pure reason for a whole semester, and I was very uh, up for that. And very late in the summer, the department chair called me in and said, look, uh, anybody in the department can teach the Kant seminar, but we need a Kierkegaard seminar, and you're it. Um, I didn't really have much in the way of credentials, um, I was probably it because I was low man on the totem pole. Um, so I scurried and put together a course, uh, which turned out to be as exciting and uh, profitable a course as I have ever taught. Just the, the right mix of teacher and student and text. Um, and I've been reading and writing and teaching Kierkegaard ever since. <clears throat> that goes back to the uh, 1960s, um, and uh, I, I look at that as a, a providential act. It, it got me into Kierkegaard early, uh, and I've been able to read, as you just said, uh, many works many times uh, in order to figure out what he's up to. Um, I don't think my views of him have changed substantially. Um, At first, of course, I thought of him as the father of existentialism, and I've gradually come to see him um, as a postmodern thinker, 
um, and as a social critic. And so I've seen new dimensions of his thought um, as I've worked uh, through his texts. Um, but I don't think um, views that I have held earlier have had to be substantially revised, but rather um, amplified. What prompted you specifically to write this book? Um, how did the issue of his view of faith come to be something that was important to you? Um, most of my writing has been uh, by invitation. Um, and I don't set out a, an ambitious agenda and say, I'm going to do this and then that. Um, somebody says, I'm putting together a book. Would you contribute an essay on this or that? That happened with this book. Steve Evans, who's a, a dear friend of mine and a very fine Kierkegaard scholar, um, with one of his colleagues at Baylor, is editing this new series at Erdman's, emphasizing Kierkegaard as a Christian thinker. Uh, the reason for that is that there is a strand of contemporary commentary that wants to de-emphasize that um, and suggest that the, the Christian stuff is peripheral. and. Um, well, that's bizarre. Uh, well, I think so. Um, but um, uh, Steve uh, asked me if I would contribute a volume to the series. Um, and I wasn't particularly planning to do more Kierkegaard uh, at that stage of the game. Um, but I thought it was a good opportunity, and I agreed to do it. And I, I don't really recall how I decided that uh, the concept of faith through three different pseudonyms um, would be the theme, but that's what it ended up as. I'm so envious that you get asked to do books, maybe one day. <laughs> well, uh, yes. Um, it, it didn't start out that way, although it, it did start out um, fairly early with essays, um, so that much of, much of my writing has been uh, in response to requests. Um, but um, the little book on hermeneutics that I did with Baker was also uh, at a request from uh, Jamie Smith. Um, well, the title of this book announces a controversy to those who have ears to hear because you say concept, singular, instead of concepts. There are obviously people who would argue that Kierkegaard's panoply of pseudonyms means that he doesn't really have a single concept of faith. But I guess basically what I'm asking you is, how, how do we make sense of the pseudonymous, uh, synonymous, it's a hard word to say, writings in relation to the works he published under his own name? Can you, can you make a case for him having a single concept of faith with all these facets, as you say in the book? Uh, let me take that as two different questions. Sure. Um, First of all, is there a single concept? Uh, you mentioned this notion of facets, um, and I present uh, Kierkegaard's thoughts about faith as facets, indeed, and um, for the purpose of emphasizing the plurality of the perspectives that he develops about faith. Um, I don't try to show that they constitute a single concept. I suggest that the reader can think about um, the degree to which they do or do not um, coherently fall together um, 
as a single but very complex concept. That's my own view, um, but I don't um, argue for it other than to say, um, look, here are these different facets. Um, I don't see any conflict between them. It seems like they mutually support one another. What do you think as you read them? So the, the, the concept term in the title um, is not meant to emphasize the unity. Um, and in the book, it's quite clear that I'm talking about um, quite a variety of concepts which may or may not uh, make a single coherent uh, whole. Right, to the extent you have a unity, you have a unity in tension. Yes, um, a, a very complex, um, multifaceted uh, unity, if I may stick with that metaphor. Now about pseudonymity, um, the title of the book says Kierkegaard's Concept of Faith. Um, and uh, I'm not terribly interested in what Kierkegaard's personal views were. Um, I think what's interesting for us is what he presents in his texts um, for our consideration to think about. Um, I think as a matter of fact, he probably um, himself holds pretty close to the views that he presents pseudonymously. But the crucial thing is that he presents some ideas for us um, to think about and consider and in that sense, they're Kierkegaard's views. He's the one we can blame, that we have to think about them. Sure. Um, and um, that, that means that the purpose of pseudonymity is certainly not to disguise the source. There was no reason to do that in, in his Denmark. And it didn't really work anyway, right? I mean, nobody was that Of that course, fool. everybody knew right away. There's never been any mystery about the authorship of, of these writings. Uh, my sense is that the purpose of pseudonymity um, is twofold. One, to distance himself from the reader uh, and say to the reader, look, here are these ideas you can think about. Uh, whatever you know about me, you can forget. Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of uh, like Shakespeare. Did, did Shakespeare write Shakespeare? Well, uh, for most of us, that doesn't really matter very much. What matters is the plays. Uh, yeah, unless you're getting paid by the uh, descendants of the Earl of Oxford. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, and, and then the second, um, the second thought uh, about the, the purpose of, of pseudonymity um, is to uh, emphasize the plurality of the perspectives from which he comes to talk about matters uh, that are important for the Christian faith. Um, his way of talking about facets, if I may put it that way, is to allow a variety of different characters um, to raise questions and discuss them um, in, in a variety of styles. Uh, interestingly, the, the people who do this kind of, uh, who wrote this um, critical analysis have, have put Kierkegaard's text in Danish into computers, and it turns out that the different pseudonyms are different authors. Oh, interesting. That's just absolutely stunning. And, uh, and, and that's hard to pick up on when you're reading it in English, I guess. Vocabulary and, and uh, grammatical uh, things and style and so forth. Um, 
they've developed uh, computerized ways of trying to figure out if Homer wrote Homer uh, and so forth, and if Isaiah wrote Isaiah. And it turns out that the pseudonyms are different authors. So his, his level of genius may be even higher than we imagined. Yes. One of my favorite undercurrents of this book is your positioning of Kierkegaard, which I, I understand I'm pronouncing wrong, but I, uh, I, I, I can't quite get my mouth around. Kierkegaard, is that how you say it? Well, the Danes would say Kierkegaard, and Americans say Kierkegaard, and I compromise. I usually say Kierkegaard, <laughs> which isn't either good Danish or good English. That's funny because I'm I'm kind of compromising in the exact opposite direction. I'm saying Kierkegaard. I, I don't think it matters too much. We know who we're talking about. Okay, good enough. Well, uh, you position him in the tradition of critical inquiry of what N Nietzsche might have called genealogy, but Kierkegaard isn't primarily attacking bourgeois morality the way Nietzsche does or bourgeois economics the way Marx does. He's interested in the deconstruction, if we can use a loaded term, of reason with a capital R. What do we have to learn from Kierkegaard about the uses and abuses of reason? Let me back up just a second and say you're right. It's not bourgeois morality or bourgeois um, economics, but it is bourgeois Christianity that is his target. Um, under Christendom. the name of Christendom. And so when late in his life he wrote a number of pamphlets that have been published under the title Attack Upon Christendom, he didn't publish them together under that title. Um, uh, I say he was developing an attack on Christendom from the very earliest stages um, of his writing um, in much the same formal matter as Nietzsche and Marx developed critiques of other aspects of 19th century bourgeois uh, culture. Um, now, let me get back. What was your, <laughs> what, how did your question end up? How does he deconstruct reason? What's the, what's the problem with, with treating reason with a capital R? Yeah. Here I see him as a precursor of philosophical hermeneutics. In, in the 19th century, um, Hegel continued a tradition that goes back to uh, the 17th century and uh, earlier than that into uh, medieval times and even back to Plato and Aristotle, the notion that reason is universal. Right, that it's, it's, it's a lingua franca. It's, it's something anybody can kind of dip into. Well, and... and Anybody who, who is thinking uh, rationally, no matter what time or place they are living in, no matter what culture, no matter what class or race or gender, it, it, reason is always speaks with one voice. And um, what um, Kierkegaard shares with Marx and Nietzsche um, is the notion that what calls itself reason is a variety of different perspectives that reason is not um, univocal, um, that, uh, well, let me, let me borrow here from a, a book I'm working on now. Um, Kant uh, talks about reason within the limits of reason alone, and I suggest that that's the title, uh, not only of a book, but of the whole project of uh, Enlightenment philosophy of religion. And I suggest that 
uh, Spinoza in the 17th century and Kant in the 18th century and Hegel in the 19th century are the most powerful versions of religion within the limits of reason alone. But each of their philosophies of religion is mutually incompatible with the other two. And what that suggests to me is that what they appeal to as reason, claiming that it is universal, is in fact something quite particular. Um, it involves a, a nest of presuppositions which differ from one thinker to another and which lead to very different conclusions. Um, and I think Kierkegaard was onto that. Uh, a lot of post-Hegelian philosophers um, had, had this sense that as they looked back on the Enlightenment and the, the claim that the Age of Reason was bringing a universal uh, culture, a universal politics, a universal religion, um, they saw that uh, quite particular presuppositions were at work um, and that we have what uh, Paul Ricoeur calls a conflict of interpretations. Um, and uh, Kierkegaard wants to uh, argue against, especially against Hegel and his uh, Danish followers, um, that simply by calling themselves the voice of reason, um, they haven't given an argument for the universality of their perspective. It's simply um, one particular uh, finite and contingent perspective, along with uh, others uh, that uh, are in competition with it. And of course, we have no shortage of people claiming to be the voice of reason today in a, from, a, from a variety of camps. So Kierkegaard can continue to be of use to us there as well as myriad other places. Uh, yes, this is, this is certainly the case. Um, what, what's different from in our time from Kierkegaard's time is that there are more philosophical um, schools or, or traditions or interpretations that recognize the plurality of reason and, and realize that there's no self-evident single criterion to which we can appeal um, and that um, we're in a situation uh, sometimes called a hermeneutical circle in which um, we, we begin to think with the help of presuppositions which um, determine to a large degree what our results will be, although uh, the results sometimes will have a retroactive effect on the presuppositions. There you get the circle moving from A to B and then back to A uh, again. Um, and Kierkegaard, I think, um, helps us to see that in relationship to some of the um, some of the main currents of thought of his time, and it's not too hard to transfer that to some of the main currents of thought of our time. So it's in this sense that he's a proto postmodern. He's not he's not in the Derridian school as much as he's in the Ricorian, I assume Gadamerian school. Um, well, uh, I I like to say that. Both of those traditions are postmodern, mm -hmm. um, precisely because they challenge this notion of reason as a pure, uh, without presuppositions, um, univocal, um, and so forth. Now, my um, my good friend Jack Caputo likes to suggest that uh, Derrida 
is the radical son of Heidegger on this point, and that Gadamer is the conservative uh, son of Heidegger. And uh, my, my thought is that uh, if you challenge that conception of reason, um, you're making as, deci as decisive a break with modernity's complacency um, in the one case as in the other. And uh, perhaps that the uh, difference between deconstruction a la Derrida and hermeneutics a la Gadamer and Ricoeur uh, or McIntyre um, are um, not as great as uh, sometimes is suggested. I sometimes use this metaphor. For Derrida, the glass is half empty. Uh, for Gadamer, the glass is half full. Um, so there's a rhetorical difference in the way they talk about our predicament. But they're pretty much agreed as to how much water there is in the glass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I, I often use Gadamer and McIntyre, and I, I don't know Ricoeur as well, but I often use Gadamer and McIntyre to kind of slide students who are resistant to postmodernism into it. Because, I mean, here is a postmodernism that is, I mean, conservative in a lot of ways. It, it rhymes with Christianity in a lot of ways. It's certainly not as openly hostile as Derrida sometimes gets, although I don't think he's as hostile as people think he is. Um, well, in, insofar as they have attitudes towards religion, um, there are significant differences among them for sure. Um, but insofar as they are postmodern, insofar as they have made a decisive break with um, what I call the complacency of modernity about the nature of reason, it seems to me that they are equally postmodern. Um, and people need to, to see that. Um, a, another way of, of coming at it is to, is to look at the way in which Kierkegaard and Nietzsche have for a long time now been uh, presented as the sort of co-founding fathers of existentialism. Right. And one is a Christian theist and one is a militant atheist. Um, that's conspicuous difference, to be sure. Um, but insofar as they um, present uh, a concept of human existence as one in which... Um, who we become depends a great deal on the choices we make. Um, they, they have a, a deep affinity. And insofar as they understand that, that um, we often deceive ourselves about what's going on in our thought life. Uh, Paul Ricoeur says that Marx and Nietzsche and Freud are the masters of, of suspicion. And it seems to me that Kierkegaard should be listed there too. He thinks that a great deal of uh, his contemporary, the thought of his contemporaries, uh, is self-deceived um, about what is really the agenda that's driving things and and uh, what what's really going on in the uh, theoretical life uh, that functions as the ideology of certain um, social establishments. It just goes to show you the paucity of the modern use of that term skepticism because nowadays the people who call themselves 
skeptics don't tend to look like Nietzsche or Kierkegaard or Freud or Marx, for that matter. They 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 basically are. I, I don't want to paint everybody who calls themselves a skeptic with this, but typically they tend to be people who would subscribe to that Enlightenment view of universal reason. Uh, that's true. Um, I distinguish suspicion from skepticism uh, rather sharply. Um, it seems to me that the skeptic challenges um, the truth or the rationality of certain beliefs, whereas suspicion is neutral with regard to those questions and focuses on what the underlying motivations are which lead people to beliefs. A genealogy. A genealogy. And so it's possible that one can um, have uh, a, a true belief for very bad reasons. Uh, and at that point, the skeptic can be defeated, but the uh, hermeneutics of suspicion uh, will be illuminating. For example, somebody brings me the rumor that one of my academic colleagues is having an affair with one of his students. And um, I have no uh, evidence in support of this, but I don't like this guy. Um, and I, I would like to see him exposed. And so I immediately believe it. Um, well, it, it turns out that it's true. Um, and my belief is not a particularly rational belief because um, I believe for bad reasons. Um, but it's possible that uh, believing things for reasons that I try to disguise from myself because they're bad reasons uh, might nevertheless lead me accidentally to true beliefs. So that's how I d distinguish uh, suspicion and, and skepticism. Um, Skepticism attacks the evidence, uh, or lack of it, um, whereas suspicion talks more about motives. Well, that makes sense. I, I mean, all of this, this whole conversation has been kind of about being careful about not using too many dichotomies. I mean, this is a, a, another postmodern idea, right? It's a web, not a, not a dichotomy. It's a very complicated system where everything's connected to everything. Nietzsche and Kierkegaard are on opposite sides on some things, and they're on the same side on a lot of other things. Exactly. The same thing I want to say about, say, Gadamer and Derrida. Well, I'm going to push another dichotomy on you and let you explode it. Okay. Um, I am certain there are people listening to this who see Kierkegaard, for better or worse, as a fetist or a, a rationalist, even an anti-rationalist. Um, I, I can guess how you're going to answer this, but... You, my, my impression is you think these labels go too far, right? So let's look at that dichotomy between reason and faith. If, if he deflates the Enlightenment idea of universal reason, how does he hold on to some reason instead of just going into irrationalism? That's a very difficult question. And... Um, my friend um, Steve Evans uh, likes to argue that, that Kierkegaard wants to present reasons for his faith, um, more so than I'm inclined to do. Um, yeah, I think Kierkegaard is um, 
fairly skeptical about what's often called apologetics, um, precisely because the reasons that we can give in support of some view, not necessarily a religious view, a political view or an economic view, uh, whatever, um, the reasons that we give uh, are themselves governed by criteria that are presupposed and which are not self-evident and not easy to justify in some neutral way. Um, so that, yes, we can give reasons, um, but the reasons themselves rest on a, a prior kind of faith, uh, not a religious faith, but an epistemic faith in the sense of a presupposition for which um, there isn't some neutral, universal um, justification. Are those presuppositions chosen arbitrarily? Because that's the uh, claim no. that McIntyre makes about Kierkegaard. Yes, and, and uh, I think um, the presuppositions that we bring with us to the interpretation of our world uh, are very seldom things that we choose at all. We have been shaped. Uh, we've grown up in, in cultures um, that have um, been the bearers of traditions, and we have been shaped, and so we, we have presuppositions, and they are at work within us. And in the process of thinking, if, if we engage in critical thinking, um, we may come in that way or in other ways um, to change those presuppositions. But very seldom is the network of presuppositions that I bring with me something that I can be said to have chosen. Um, that just doesn't quite fit the way presuppositions work. Um, so um, there's a certain um, passivity involved here. There's a certain embeddedness. Um, and um, that means that the task of, of critical thinking um, it is a task that uh, doesn't have any unambiguous, self-evident point of departure that can be the um, stable, un unchanging uh, criterion by which we operate. One way to put that is that all thinking relies on some kind of faith, mm -hmm. uh, a, a belief that isn't itself the product of a neutral, universal reason. And that Spinoza's reason, if I can go back to this example, and Kant's reason, and Hegel's reason, which are three quite different versions of reason, um, each represents a fundamental faith on their part um, that is the guiding network of criteria by which they proceed. So I don't find the concept of of fideism um, helpful. It seems to me that uh, wherever you have appeals to reason, there's an underlying faith that's at work, um, and that um, wherever faith is seen as fundamental, as it often is in religious contexts, the process of uh, giving reasons to show how this faith makes sense um, is somehow internal to the faith rather than, than external. I don't stand outside the faith um, as if I could get outside my faith. 
and work my way into it somehow. But uh, and, and likewise, yeah. faith is something that makes sense once you get inside it. So you can give as many reasons as you want, but until until somebody has decided this is how I'm going to order my life, those reasons aren't going to make much of a difference. Uh, something like that, yes. Um, reasons are relative to the faith uh, that, that is presupposed by them. Um, and what it, what it does, what, what is possible, is to try to show how, how uh, a certain point of view makes sense, what its internal logic is. Kierkegaard, in, in one of the translations, has a phrase that I, I love, the logic of insanity. <laughs> he says, from a certain point of view, a Christian faith is insane. From certain secular assumptions, it's sheer madness. But it has its own logic. It, it has its own interior reasonableness. Uh, and I see Kierkegaard primarily as a thinker trying to articulate the interior reasonableness, uh, coherence uh, of Christian faith. So do you think when he says in concluding on Scientific Postscript, subjectivity is true, do you think he's saying what we need is to, I, I hate, these are apologetics terms I know, uh, what we need is to move away from the correspondence theory of truth to the coherence theory? No. No. I don't think so. First of all, he doesn't say subjectivity is truth. He says truth is subject. Truth is subject. Sorry about that. Uh, no, that uh, that may not be terribly important. But uh, what's more important than that is that he's very emphatic about the fact that he's not talking about what is true or how we should go about trying to decide what is true. He's talking about the how of truth. That is to say the question of how we appropriate what we take to be truth into our lives. And in terms of the how, truth had better be subjectivity, that is to say, um, I'm, I'm a hypocrite or worse if I say, well, this is what I take to be the truth, but I don't live my life in accordance with it. And so the emphasis there is not on how to find out what we should believe, but how we should uh, convert our theories into practice, how we should live our lives in accordance with what we profess to believe. And that's quite a different emphasis from what is often taken to be the meaning of that uh, famous or infamous uh, slogan. And, and your book has a very, I think, helpful explication of the passage where he talks about the one guy who prays to the real God and the one guy who prays with all his heart to an idol. Which is, I mean, a passage that's disturbed a lot of people in concluding on Scientific Postscript. But I, I think your book really explains well how what we're not ta we're not talking about one guy's entirely right and one guy's entirely wrong. Well, of course they're both wrong, but they're both wrong, but in different ways. And and one way is more damaging. That's the point Kierkegaard wants to make. Uh, the person who got the what wrong but has the how right, he thinks, is in less danger than the person who has the what right and the how wrong. Now, that's an attack upon Christendom. Yeah. That's saying to uh, Lutheran orthodoxy in, in Denmark or Hegelian orthodoxy in the academy, um, you folks are so preoccupied um, with having the right theory about the world and about human life that you don't allow it to, to reshape your lives. 
uh, in any ways. And uh, in another book, he has this um, rather vivid picture of the thinker, and it could be a Hegelian philosopher or an Orthodox Lutheran theologian who, who builds this beautiful palace, but then lives in a little hut beside it. Mm-hmm. That was Walker Percy's favorite passage from Kierkegaard. Oh, that's interesting. Talked about it over and over again about the, the the system the system that explains everything in the universe except the person thinking it. So so what what place for doctrine do you see in Kierkegaard? It seems to me that Kierkegaard is always presupposing um, more or less orthodox Lutheran theology. Um, his his views about original sin may be a little bit different from Luther's. Um, but it seems to me that that he's always um, thinking along the lines of maybe I shouldn't even say Lutheran, uh, what Lewis C.S. Lewis calls mere Christianity, that um, common core of Christian belief that is shared by many traditions across many generations in many different contexts. That, it seems to me, he always takes for granted and says, well, where do we go from there? Let's talk about some things that we, uh, that we take for granted. He's, he's writing to an audience that purports to be Christian. Um, and he says, okay, I'll take you at your word. Uh, I'll assume that you're Christian. Let's assume that you uh, believe um, what Christians have always believed, um, and then look at some other questions about the, what the implications of this are for um, our, our lives uh, in the world we live in. Um, and at that point, he's an existentialist, uh, focusing in on the subjectivity of, of my personal existence. Walter Kelfman, I think, I think it's Kaufman says something very similar to that, that that to to treat Kierkegaard as this hazy spiritualist is as people often do uh is to is to misunderstand that he never seems to question any major doctrine of the church. Um the one the one possible exception to that is infant baptism. And I, I'm not sure that he actually questions it. But he certainly um, calls attention to the potential danger um, that he thinks is far more than potential in uh, Lutheran Denmark, that um, you were baptized as an infant when you didn't have any possibility of fighting back <laughs> or choosing, and you assume that that uh, that makes you a Christian and you can forget about what's involved in being a Christian because you've been baptized. Um, and and he wants to emphasize that baptism and faith go together. Uh, Luther emphasizes that, but Kierkegaard wasn't sure that all of his followers in Denmark uh, took that seriously. And so when he says that faith is the task of a lifetime, um, title one of my chapters, um, uh, he's saying to baptized Christians, Look, don't just fall back on your baptism and think that your Christianity is finished. Um, 
your baptism sets you a lifetime of challenges living the life of faith. And each of the different facets that he presents to us um, are different tasks. Task is one of Kierkegaard's favorite words. Mm -hmm. And uh, faith is always a task. Um, and so to that degree, he's, he's very nervous about infant baptism. He kind of but won that fight, though. Worried about a, a Baptist who says, oh, I was baptized when I was 18, um, and that takes care of everything. I've prayed the sinner's prayer. Yeah. I must admit, uh, one early passage in your book gave me uh, pause, because I've been thinking for a while now about existentialism as a species of virtue ethics in the sense that it involves acting in certain ways to become a certain sort of person. Um, Good. I think I, like I think McIntyre would be very angry to hear me say that existentialism <laughs> is a form of virtue ethics. But I think what Sartre and Aristotle have in common is a rejection of that universalist ethics of Kant or Mill or other Enlightenment style thinkers. But Kierkegaard says that we have to transcend the ethical. And you write, and I'll quote you, the ethical as universal is not something like a Platonic form or a Kantian principle. It is rather a concrete universal some historically particular community to which individuals belong and whose laws are the norms for their lives. And that, that sounds to me like a description of McIntyrean virtue ethics. Um, and, and it seems to me that Kierkegaard would say you have to transcend even McIntyrean practice, McIntyrean virtue to make the practice happen in order to live authentically in front of God. Am I, do you think I'm trying to square the circle by turning existentialism into virtue ethics? Or is there another plane on which they converge? No, I, I like the, the idea of their convergence. Um, when Kierkegaard says we have to, actually he doesn't say we have to transcend the ethical. He says if we want to be religious, we have to. And we have to suspend it. It's not an abnegation. It's just a, suspend it. yeah, you get it back. The reason for that is he's using the term ethical in the sense in which Hegel uses it, uh, in which it's not only a virtue ethics, but it's the the worldview according to which the laws and customs of my society are the highest norms for my behavior. That is, what counts as virtue in bourgeois Denmark uh, is the highest criterion of, that I should strive toward. And um, Kierkegaard wants to distinguish the religious from that by saying that um, the laws and customs, the virtues, if you like, of no society are absolute and final. They all have a relative sig significance at most, and they are all subject to uh, divine critique and divine judgment. Um, mm. And so uh, to be religious um, is not to uh, complacently assume that some community in which I live, including a, com a religious community, a church, um, uh, defines virtue in a, in a final way. So Kierkegaard wants to have a virtue. The second half of works of love is a virtue ethic, very clearly, whereas the first half is a, a duty ethic. Um, but um, the, the teleological suspension of the ethical is not the teleological suspension of virtue as such, but the suspension of the notion that my particular community 
is the final word about the virtues that I should seek and cultivate. Um, and I, when he talks about the ethical as the universal, he gives some examples of what he has in mind. Society, the state, the nation, the church, and the sect. And when I talk about a concrete human community, I'm thinking about those five different forms of human life, which Kierkegaard wants to say are human all too human and should never be treated as absolute. I think it's Emerson who, who actually dovetails with Kierkegaard in, in some interesting ways, who says that, I think he says the the virtues of society are vices to the saints. And also he says that yesterday's virtue is today's vice because you're always having to move upward. Do you think Kierkegaard would go along with that? Well, he not only would go along with that, he says that himself. Gotcha. <laughs> um, quoting um, more or less from uh, one of the church fathers, Lactantius, and Augustine, who sort of quotes Lactantius, Kierkegaard frequently inserts into his writings the claim that the virtues of the pagans are splendid vices or glittering vices. Um, and uh, he has just that Emersonian notion um, in mind. The, the trick is that he makes this sound as if he's saying to his Danish readers, um, the secularists and the pagans, they, they, what they think of as virtue is really a vice. Uh, but you, you Christians, you have true virtues. And then he, he turns around and, and makes it clear that he's uh, describing Christendom as a form of paganism. Hmm. Um, precisely because it takes our laws and our customs our ethos, our way of life as the absolute, as the highest criterion for human existence, and in doing so deifies itself and commits idolatry. And what the story of Abraham tells us is there is no ethical precept that, that can't be suspended if you're called to do so by God. Yes, and that, of course, has the the dangerous possibility of somebody coming along and saying, well, the reason I killed him is because God told me to. Right. Um, but uh, Kierkegaard doesn't think that there's any um, solution to that possibility by deifying any social order. He thinks that's even more dangerous uh, than the original, than the uh, occasional uh, lunatic. Because then faith is not possible. Then faith is not possible. At least the sort uh, of faith he's interested in. faith is idolatrous. What, what I call Christian faith is really um, my, my faith in uh, my particular culture, or what I sometimes call the AWOL, the American way of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's, a, it's not just Americans, right? This is a danger for anybody who lives in any culture. That's that's Kierkegaard's point. He he makes it with regard to his Denmark. I I sometimes translate that to the American situation, but um, his point is indeed a generic one. Because no, there's no there's no culture that could possibly understand what Abraham does. 
Um, there's no culture that has built into its ethos an imperative to Abraham to do what he does. Yeah, because how could you? Um, you couldn't. Um, it, it's um, you, you couldn't have a society if you had that. Well, let's move on to the uh, the sickness unto death, which is in some ways the Kierkegaard book that most clearly prefigures existentialism and in other ways is very different. Um, you say that one of the facets of uh, faith we get from sickness, is, uh, sickness unto death, not generic sickness, is uh, faith as willing to be oneself before God. What does it mean to be oneself and why might we need faith to accomplish that? His analysis... Uh, there involves the interesting sub suggestion that um, much of the time we want to be someone else than we are. Um, and that means at least two things. One, I want to be somebody other than the self I have been up to this point. I want to sort of deny my past. Um, or I want to become... Um, someone other than the self that is a possibility for me. Um, I want to become a, a star basketball player in the National Basketball Association. I, especially at my age, I don't have that possibility. And so instead of living the life that is given to me and to which I am called, um, I, I want to live some other life. Um, and so I'm living in a kind of a fantasy world, a kind of a dream world, um, a world of, of double denial, both denying what I have been and denying what I am called to be. The willing to be oneself um, is, is the willingness um, to be the self I have become and to strive to be the self I am called and that call ultimately for Kierkegaard is a call that comes from God and so um, to be willing to be oneself before God um, is to be willing to be um, a life lived in answer to the call of God uh, to be what God has enabled me to be and challenged me to be and Doing that, Kierkegaard thinks, is a task of a lifetime. The one time I've taught sickness unto death, I, I kind of ran it up against Sartre because the, the first part of what you said, that, that um, not being willing to be, be yourself is pretending you haven't been the things you have been, that's that's right out of Sartre, right? That's bad faith. Yes. Um, but I, I think Sartre would disagree with the second half of that, right? This this vocation, this thing I'm called to be. Certainly he would say you have limitations, right? You're not going to be a basketball player, neither was Sartre. Five foot four, I think. But but is is the difference between Christian existentialism and atheistic existentialism a matter of vocation, do you think? Uh, that certainly is a fundamental difference. I, I'm hesitant to say it's the difference. Sure. Uh, but it certainly is a fundamental difference. Um, and here uh, Kierkegaard's Luther background comes into play, because for Luther the notion of 
every individual having a calling and every individual's calling being a sacred calling because it comes from God so that the the, the, the difference between laity and clergy uh, which was so fundamental to the religious world that Luther uh, started out in um, gets radically relativized some people are called to the life of clergy and other people are called to uh, life as farmers or computer programmers or um, child care uh, people or, or, or whatever and all of those calls are equally sacred because for each of us what we are called to be um, is from God and it's possible to refuse that call it's possible it's possible to refuse it uh, outright but Kierkegaard's psychology suggests that we're much more likely uh, to refuse it um, in ways that aren't an outright refusal but rather involve self-deception um, we find ways of pretending to ourselves here bad faith is a good, a good notion um, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're someone other than the person we have already become and we deceive ourselves into thinking that um, we uh, ought to be able to be somebody other than ourselves so the value of despair is that it strips us of those illusions and then we're able to see what we are and perhaps what we can be more clearly? The value of conscious despair mm -hmm. is what you say. We can be in despair without being aware of it. We all are. <laughs> he's, he's, yes, and, and Kierkegaard is very emphatic about that. Um, so uh, when we come to see uh, our bad faith, uh, when we come to see the way in which we are unwilling to be ourselves, the possibility opens up for us to choose um, to try to become uh, the self we uh, are called to be. Uh, several chapters of your book deal with this notion of offense. Uh, most of us are accustomed to thinking of doubt as the opposite of faith, but you treat offense in a lot of cases is the opposite of faith. Why might it be beneficial to put offense in that spot? Uh, don't give me the credit for that. It's Kierkegaard who right. <laughs> insists that offense is the opposite of faith. Um, faith involves um, a challenge to the self that I would like to be. Um, one way to talk about that is simply to say that I'm a sinner. Um, and in sin sinfulness, I'm not willing to be myself. I'm fleeing from myself. I'm in bad faith. And so um, when faith is presented to me as a challenge, it says to me, um, you're not living the way you should be living. You're not becoming whom you're supposed to be. And that offends me. That, that's not good news. Um, I remember um, hearing an interesting sermon years ago um, that was entitled, The First Word of the Gospel. And the preacher said, do you know what the first word of the gospel is? Gospel, you know, is good news. And the first word of the gospel is bad news. Yeah. The first word of the gospel is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And uh, Kierkegaard has that sense that the call to faith is a call that says, uh, I'm headed the wrong direction, um, and I need to change my ways, I need to repent, I need to be converted. And since faith is the task of a lifetime, I need to repent and be converted again and again and again and again on a eventually daily basis. Uh, that's not good news. That, that's not what I want to hear. Right. We want to hear so everything's fine. I'm, I'm likely to offend, likely to respond um, with, with offense precisely insofar as I detect in the call to faith uh, truth about myself and truth about my world, precisely insofar as I'm not doubting, um, I'm likely to be uh, offended. And so um, he thinks that uh, our resistance to the call of faith um, isn't always and isn't primarily a matter of, well, is there evidence enough for me to believe this, but rather Am I willing to be open to this call? And so he shifts, if you like, the core of the self from the intellect to the will mm -hmm. um, in keeping with the biblical conception of the heart. Not the emotions, because that, I mean, that's the other dichotomy that Christianity is rife with, right? Intellect and emotions, but it's not either one of them, it's the will. Uh, he, he's much more uh, a philosopher of the will um, although uh, Robert Roberts, uh, Steve Evans' uh, brilliant colleague at Baylor, um, has done some really wonderful work on Kierkegaard and the emotions. Uh, Roberts is a, a very fine theoretician of the emotions, philosophy of the emotions, um, and he does this uh, often in conjunction with Kierkegaard. So if, if you want to make him a virtue theorist, um, Roberts says yes. Uh, let's make Kierkegaard a virtue theorist, noting that virtue theory is about bringing our actions and our emotions into conformity with the right sort of norms. Right, learning to feel the right things. Learning to re feel the right things, exactly. Ka Kaufman, again, criticizes Kierkegaard for what you just said, actually, because he, he calls him basically an authoritarian. He says that, that Kierkegaard doesn't want to persuade you to be a Christian. He just says, if you're not a Christian, you're basically in open rebellion against God and you're doing it on purpose, if I, if I recall him correctly. Um, I think it would be fairer to say uh, in bad faith than on purpose, mm -hmm. because uh, on purpose suggests a, a rather fully conscious um, negation. Whereas Kierkegaard's psychology is that uh, much more often than an overt, uh, fully conscious refusal um, is a self-deceived um, de denial uh, that allows us to say no without fully realizing that we're saying no. And I think that is what Kierkegaard um, is, is doing, uh, suggesting that... Um, when presented with uh, the claims of Christian faith, um, people's responses are very likely, if they're negative responses, um, are very likely to be in bad faith. And of course, I mean, Kaufman had his own problems with faith. So, 
I mean, it makes sense. certainly wasn't sympathetic to Christianity. Kierkegaard was writing into a drastically different world than our own, um, one in which you, we've used the term over and over again, Christendom, uh, was this consensus view in the West. Now that civic religion has largely decayed, what does Kierkegaard have to say to us? How is reading him in 2014 different than reading him in 1968 or in 1930 or in 1850? Or I, I guess you couldn't go back much further than that. But It, it certainly is true that he doesn't uh, address an audience today that he can take for granted consists overwhelmingly of professing Christians and fairly regular churchgoers. Um, but um, while there is a much more um, overt secularism in our day than there was in his day, um, that secularism itself has the form of a religion in many respects. And so uh, it can be critiqued uh, along the same kinds of lines that he uh, attacks Christendom. Um, it sometimes purports to be based on a universal reason, some kind of scientific naturalism, uh, or in, in the Philosophical Academy, uh, an overt materialism. Um, and uh, the same sort of um, critique that he offers of Hegelianism on the one hand and, and Christendom on the other hand can be adapted to a critique of, of modern secularism. But then there's also uh, the attempt to wed the AWOL, the American way of life, to the Christian faith uh, that's a very strong part of the politics of the world we live in. Um, and while that isn't uh, as pervasive as Christendom was in Kierkegaard's time, uh, it certainly is a very prominent feature of the world we live in. Um, it's what's usually referred to as the religious right, uh, which seeks to wed a certain American way of life with uh, the Christian faith. And Kierkegaard's critique um, of his Christendom uh, can be adapted without too much difficulty, I think, to uh, that particular social structure in the world we live in. I imagine he'll always be useful for Christians because he keeps us from being complacent. But I like what you said about what he has to say to the secular world as well, these, these various other pieties and orthodoxies that people take for granted. Um, some of the um, contemporary atheist writings um, seem to me appropriately described as fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. um, they obviously don't share the beliefs of Christian fundamentalists, but if, if you think of fundamentalism as a certain type of mindset, um, then uh, it doesn't have to be religious. Um, it doesn't have to be Christian. People talk about Muslim fundamentalists, um, and, and one can see the, the affinity between uh, certain kinds of religious fundamentalists, but also seems to me there are um, secularists whose mindset is like that, 
um, a certain complacency, a certain confidence, a certain certain um, absoluteness. Yeah, a, a sense that we are the people, and wisdom will die with us. We, we've we've got it, and everybody else is uh, just uh, lost. I think um, Terry Eagleton makes a similar argument to that in his latest book. I don't know if you've re- read that, but it's it's it was interesting to me. Culture and the death of God. It it kind of follows in the footsteps of um, I don't know if you ever read George Steiner's Nostalgia for the Absolute. This this notion that when the vacuum appears, when when civic religion begins to decay, and we no longer have an absolute framework around, around which to build our our society, well, we got to scramble to find something else that'll fit it. And people are no more free from that in 2014 than they were in Kierkegaard's day or in Plato's, for that matter. There's something in us that wants the absolute. Kierkegaard's two major targets were Hegelianism and Christendom. And um, it seems to me that they, they represent a sort of two generic forms of what you just were describing. One is um, an academic intellectual form, um, and one is um, uh, a religious and cultural form. And it seems to me that the world in which we live in, uh, those two are quite widely split from each other, um, but there is a, a, a widespread academic intellectual uh, ethos that treats itself as absolute, um, and there is a, a fairly widespread religious cultural ethos that treats itself as absolute. Um, and uh, the so-called culture wars go on between these two, but there are some other players on the scene as well. Mm-hmm. And the rest of us are just kind of hung in the middle. Yeah, uh, there there aren't... Uh, always um, prefabricated homes for everybody. Um, I think Jesus said something about that. Well, you uh, mentioned earlier you're working on another book. I like to end these interviews by asking if they ha- if our guests have a next next project lined up. Obviously you do. Would you mind uh, talking about it for just a minute? Uh, the working title is In Praise of Heteronomy. And uh, I take uh, the idea of autonomy, that is, of reason's sufficiency to itself, to be the um, ideal of the Enlightenment. Um, And my Spinoza-Kant-Hegel argument is designed to show that uh, the notion that uh, reason can be autonomous and universal and therefore superior to all forms of religious heteronomy, which depend upon revelation and turn out to be um, pluralistic. That is, there are Jews and Christians and Muslims, and among the Christians there are Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant, and and, um, religion is inherently pluralistic, but secular reason can develop a a universal religion. Um, And I I want to argue, first of all, that that ideal of 
of autonomy is flawed because it comes in as many different versions as religion ever did. Sure, yeah. Um, and secondly, that that um, heteronomy is not to be um, led in the way in which modernity has been inclined to flee it for two reasons. One, we're always heteronymous. That is, we are always shaped by forces that we didn't choose and that of which we are not fully aware. Or as I was saying earlier, we're always embedded in some faith which we bring with us to the world. Um, and in that sense, um, we're always um, the product of some heteronomy. And secondly, the explicitly religious heteronomy um, that it seems to me is essential to mere Christianity insofar as we are dependent upon God and dependent upon divine revelation and therefore not sufficient unto ourselves. Um, it is not uh, something to be feared as a form of alienation or uh, unfreedom. Um, but rather uh, as a destiny that can be welcomed and as the source of authentic freedom. And one of the, one of the things I'm going to eventually um, do when I'm trying to say a good word about heteronomy rather than deconstructing autonomy is to look back at the Psalms and the theme of delighting in the law of God. The law of God is heteronymous. It's not the voice of my reason. It's the voice of, of a God who is um, not, not reducible to the human. Um, but there is a, a way in which um, that is found to be delightful by the psalmist. And I want to suggest uh, against certain kinds of criticism that that isn't inherently masochistic. Hmm. Well, I look forward to reading that book when it comes out, and hopefully we'll be able to get you to come back on the show and talk to us about it. Well, then. at this stage of the game, I don't uh, proceed as quickly as I used to be able to, but I'm grinding away at it, and then paragraphs get added every day. That's all, that's all you can ask for, right? I guess so. Thank you so much for coming on uh, Christian Humanist Profiles. If our listeners would like to uh, buy... Dr. Westfall's book, we will have a link to the Amazon page on uh, our website at christianhumanist.org, where we'll also have show notes and a chance to leave comments if you're so inclined. Um, thanks for listening. Thank you, Michael. And thank you. It's been fun.